welcome to another episode of the Being Human and Doing Psychotherapy podcast, where I try to understand what is that the psychotherapeutic that we can find in all of us, and who are the people that are behind the psychotherapist identity. And, and today uh, I'm joined by an iron woman, <laughs> uh, Vanessa Reiser, who uh, will talk about her therapeutic modality, but also uh, is very passionate to talk about a specific topic, which is narcissism, which I sh whose passion I share uh, in this. So welcome, Vanessa, and thanks for taking the time for talking about this. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So I want to, I always start this podcast by just asking you, what are some words that you feel like you identify yourself with? Um, definitely strong, smart, um, an advocate, um, feminist, mom, iron woman, dog mom, friend, um, athlete. I guess those are some things that come to mind. And uh, the athleticism, did, was that always present for you or is that something that came um, with the development or change? Or I was definitely not always athletic. Uh, as a teenager, I was overweight and I lost, I think, 72 pounds when I was 21. So I got um, into the fitness world and have stayed there for many, many years. I have completed um, a lot of marathons, uh, New York City twice, Boston, ultra marathon, Iron, uh, Ironman races, Spartans. And then last year I ran across the state of New York in a wedding dress to raise awareness for narcissistic abuse, which was definitely um, the most athletic thing I'd ever done. Um, and it was very therapeutic and transformative, but yeah, in terms of being an athlete, I kind of adopted that a little bit later. I wasn't athletic as a child per se. Mm -hmm. And I always wonder, because I haven't run, um, uh, any marathons, uh, what is the feeling when you finish it or when you finish your first one? Oh, it was so emotional. I remember I finished my first one in Westchester County, New York. They no longer have that marathon there, but they would close the very famous Bronx River Parkway. And um, you did a couple of loops. And I just remember thinking like, wow, I did it. And then, you know, it was like a bug. So now um, running is kind of my addiction in some ways. So um, I have to be careful with my knees and stuff because I could probably just run all day every day if I mm. uh, if my body would allow it. <laughs> and I wonder because you have gone through uh, a lot of things that would bro break someone, but you've managed, you endured, and um, even in marathons or or Ironmans, uh, narcissistic relationships there's still something that holds you in that space. Um, sometimes it's a voice, sometimes it's a God. Uh, I wonder what is it for you in these spaces of deep struggle and feeling like, well, if I do this, I'm not going to survive. Or like, this feels like I'm not going to survive. 
but you still somehow manage. Uh, what do you feel? What do you hear when when you are not held by anything but yourself? I think I tend to raise the bar for myself. I think I actually am rather competitive with myself. Mm -hmm. So I don't think I compete necessarily with others as much as I want to see um, based on what you've said that I feel like I can do many things. So I'm always curious to see what I can pull off if I can pull something off. And I've seen, I have very good friends that are very formidable athletes. I have a friend who did Ultraman, which is three Ironmans in one row, in one scenario, one, not one day even, but one um event and you know they whenever I called him and I said do you think I can run across the state of New York he was like fuck yeah you know like so I mean I don't think there are very few things I think I couldn't pull off based on what I have endured and what I've gone through and um, like I said, with the exception of like what my body will allow me to do, I'm always willing to give it a try, um, to push myself. Mm. Wow. And, uh, I would want to get into the narcissism topic, uh, because, uh, that's something we, we discussed to talk about. And I'm wondering, the first thing is for me is what do you think made you vulnerable to that relationship? And what do you think was things that you were your shadow that you were just not able to see? I had just gone through a breakup um, just about six months prior that was rather devastating. So um, in that case, I believe I was lured into, so I was rather vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe I was sought out Um as this person does with most of his victims. Um, he kind of has, you know, people on the back burner, but also people that um, he's maybe stalking. Mm-hmm. Um, so I believe that's kind of his uh, modus operandi. So I think that's how he operates. And um, I happen to be vulnerable at that time. So um kind of fell right into the trap Mm, I I must admit I uh very much resonate it it happened very similarly for me I was going through my divorce and it's so beautiful when someone suddenly gives you the love you always wanted (laughs) Mm yeah um and I'm I'm wondering just to set the stage for people who don't know you um what was that relationship how how long it was and um and what was the outcome uh, of of the whole ordeal so i have to be careful because of i find myself with um false criminal charges quite a bit and in the judicial system which so many people have to navigate and it is really hard because the judicial system is not equipped to discern what this looks like because as you know the narcissist is the most charming and philanthropic and will cry the fake tears and is overly victimized and so we don't have uh judges and attorneys that are able to discern what this looks like so um I will say that I was in a relationship 
um, that this person was uh, love bombing me in the very first place. So there was all of these gifts and travel and you are my soulmate. You're the most amazing lover, the most amazing friend. I, you know, wish I met you years ago. I mean, just on and on and on. I mean, gifts and the chaos of it. Um, there was a lot of gaslighting, a lot of addictive behaviors, the cycle of abuse started which included the love bombing and then this tension building and then a fight and then the love bombing tension building and then a fight and so this cycle began which created a trauma bond for me um he was extremely manipulative had no empathy um was a liar um and it really affected me so i left finally after threatening to do so so many times because it was impossible to live with um and when i did i shook for nine days i was dealing with a major trauma bomb like an addiction so there's data that tells us that this is basically like dealing with a drug addiction um and i had to put my life back together again because i had moved in and sort of given up my career and all of my friends and i was isolated and um, it was really, really hard. However, I was able to remember who I was before. And I was really lucky because I didn't have children with him. Um, and in his relationship where he did have children, he totally brutalized her, as they often do, like I said, in the judicial system. Um, but for me, I was like able to find that girl again. Um, and I consider myself super fortunate because a lot of times people will meet these um, narcissists, sociopaths and psychopaths at a young age and they haven't developed a sense of self. So they usually come to me with kind of this um, void of sorts and we really have to find out who they are, which is an amazing study. But um, they have to be really kind of open to that experience because the narcissists like can a rob you of your identity, but also kind of create this codependent experience where you don't even know who you are. So they they really have an uphill battle. I was fortunate enough because I was like, oh, I remember that girl. I got to go be that girl again. And I did. But um, it took about two years. It was really horrifying. I never, you know, had anything. I've had plenty of love affairs and breakups and, you know, it wasn't my first rodeo, but this was nothing like anything I ever went through. Yeah, exactly. And now you're saying exactly. It took about two years <laughs> and uh, and a lot of back and forth and uh, and a lot of luckily good holding from my therapist uh, to remember who I was before that. And I'm still as we discussed just before this kind of going out and remembering that but I'm wondering at least I know my own story but do you feel like also your childhood has created a vulnerability or for you it was also that breakup oh yeah it was my childhood was um kind of chaotic and so this felt familiar I was kind of oh you know this feels like something I remember having um, so yeah, absolutely. Um, as well as the addictive component. So in my family, there were a lot of alcoholics. Mm -hmm. So that kind of has a lot of parallels in terms of the shame and the golden child and the scapegoat and, 
you'll you see a lot of parallels between the alcoholic family and the narcissistic family and that experience. So um, there were absolutely I was primed for this. And I'm actually in some so many ways glad I went through sort of the portal of it because then it forced me to do the work on myself. And it was during COVID, which was particularly lonely and weird. So I was like sitting in the muck of it, like ugh, trying to figure out like what the hell this was. So I definitely was as blessed as you can be when you go through something like this. And that's what sort of prompted me to be like on the front lines of this cause, because I was like, I think I have to do something for the millions of silent victims, because how could I not be a voice considering my licensure and the work that I do and the athleticism thing? And I was like, all right, here we go. And I've just been kind of, you know, just barreling through it because I, I I think I speak for so many people that cannot yeah exactly I have a very similar feeling and I'm just literally getting goosebumps as you're talking about this because yeah wow uh it's really something that you just feel like this just cannot go under the rug and we really need to find a way so that it's easier for many people who actually don't have voices and one of those things which I still, I don't know how was your healing process, but I guess for me, still part of the integration is, is this feeling of you care about him? <laughs> I don't know if you ever had that, but it's just that there's like, I actually cared about this person. And maybe I confuse it with the addictive feeling and everything. And then there is, you see the wounded child in him or whatever. And then integrating the fact that a lot of that is project my projection of what I am onto someone who does not have those capacities <laughs> that's what it is it's not that you care for him because they don't exist they are a chameleon they're only mirroring you so really the whole time you're spending your your time with yourself yeah you really have fallen in love with yourself you are the magic you are the happiness you are the strength you are the joy you are the things that they covet um, narcissists and socio sociopaths do not, um, get excited by your happiness. They want to destroy you. So, because they would need to make themselves feel better. So they sort of mimic and then kind of carry you along to the extent that they can begin to chip away at you. But really you, you sort of are the magic you, and, and this is how we get people sometimes it's particularly difficult to leave cults is that you really have to get them to understand that they are the magic that they need to really sort of turn that kind of mirror around and really like learn that they are the thing that the narcissist seeks that they are the supply the beauty the gift like they and it's really hard for people going through this to do that because as we mentioned generally there's this foundation of a lack of identity or some vulnerability so they don't have that cognition and the sturdiness to do it but that's the truth is that you when you're in a relationship with a narcissist you're not in love with an, with them because they don't exist it's a it's a hollow creature so um you're really in love with yourself yeah yeah that's i mean that's um, a conclusion i've i've came to many times even during the process uh but I'm also curious uh, about the judicial system. Uh, 
I had my own, uh, I didn't have go, have to go through the judicial system, but I have had to go through an HR process, which again, clearly showed me that there is no knowledge. There is absolute void of knowledge about this impact. And not only that there is a void of knowledge is when the process is done, people don't really take care of what happens with you afterwards. Uh, regardless of all the effects that we know, it's almost, for me, it was PTSD symptoms, but I guess it's happening for most of the victims of, of narcissistic abuse. And so I'm curious about what's your experience until now? How can we bring that knowledge and how can we make it systemic? Yeah, um, I had false criminal charges filed against me Um 18 counts it cost me a, a ton of money and it was all because he was going to go after my social work license I believe to discredit me and destroy my career so that I would basically shut the fuck up which I refused to do thank god though I I had a judge that was able to discern that this person was lying um but we see a lot of judges and attorneys the family court system specifically in the United States is just a playground for dirty judges, attorneys, um, and they don't have enough information or they don't care enough to learn about what this psychological abuse looks like and how to figure out um, custody situations and scenarios. And they end up robbing the women generally based on patriarchy of their sovereignty of their finances of their children um the stories i hear um for most people the trauma is compounded by the judicial system so it's already a trauma but now you're not being believed um and then potentially your children are being ripped from you to, and given to somebody who you think may even be raping i mean there's literally like these horrifying stories um, that I deal with, you know, I have over 500 clients in my practice. I'm licensed in four states. And I can't tell you the stories that I hear really like just make you want to rage. I mean, truly like, but one of the things that we can do is Tina Swithin is from One Mom's Battle. Mm -hmm. And she has been developing a rather comprehensive list of um, judges and attorneys or custody evaluators and law guardians that have been getting bad reviews by um, people in this kind of trauma. So she's developed a list and she's outing them on Instagram. She'll post their picture and say, what is your, what has your experience been like with this, you know, Joe Schmo or whomever this judge is and people she's creating a database it's the first of its kind where we can begin to um collaborate around you know who needs to be pushed out disbarred um mm -hmm. of these seats because this is the scariest place for victims yeah I mean I must admit yeah the not believing part I was very lucky. Uh, I, I say this for this person from human resources. He's the human in the human resources <laughs> because there was no moment where he asked me, Do, are you sure that this is what you're going through? Uh, it was really from 
moment zero, he was basically understanding that this is not how it should be. And actually, I would not have gone through the process if there was no person like this. Because he told me, you know, this might be really difficult, but you know that this is the right thing to do. And and for me, it's really, um, I'm, I'm a, a little bit kind of sweaty as I'm talking about this because it's still very fresh, but uh, the importance of believing people that are going through really difficult situations is is enormous. And I'm wondering who was the first person that believed you? Ooh, so this is the heaviest part of the conversation, I think, for most people. And this isn't just about narcissistic abuse, but like when I was working in the Bronx at an outpatient mental health clinic, um, there were a lot of people that were dealing with trauma and abuse. Maybe they were in the foster care system and they're oftentimes not as mad at their abuser as they are at the system that was supposed to protect them or the family member that was supposed to protect them or so they're kind of looking around, right? So the abusers doing what they're doing and they're kind of looking around to say like, you know, does anybody see this? Does anybody believe me? So that's why we have this really important language where we tell victims that we believe them because the real pain is not, is not really what occurs. It's actually feeling believed, feeling like, you know, you're not crazy because maybe you've been gaslit for so long. So the believing part is what I consider to be the biggest issue for my clients is that this injustice of people not believing them, not believing them is the, as it is the core of their pain, because it's very hard to believe you're, we're talking about like poets, priests, and politicians that are in positions where they are um, very beloved in the community and maybe they're offering up a lot of money to certain organizations and like I said can cry and and behind the scenes they are the most horrifying monsters and so you know this part of being believed is the biggest piece mm, yeah and I'm also wondering um, before people get to that belief part i'm wondering what what can be also done in terms of educating or even like most of the people that are narcissistic get to these positions of power basically and i'm wondering how can we i mean we have vast knowledge about the human nervous system <laughs> and 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 knowledge of how to recognize people like this and yet i don't i don't know if any uh, organization does any screening for something like that um and not only that it doesn't do screening it almost as if like collects exactly these kind of personalities so i'm wondering is there any way uh, that you have encountered or to kind of overcome this part where we actually don't select them anymore to be in positions of power <laughs> That is such a great question. I am writing a book and in doing so, I've had to be, I've just recently started studying certain inventories or assessments that people can take to assess for psychopathy um, and coercive controlling behaviors. So, you know, there are some people that I, I look forward to connecting with in terms of developing a stronger inventory, something that sort of fuses like an FBI test that that can assess for lying and then also 
one that can assess for controlling behaviors or psychopathy and kind of marrying this so that you could kind of, um, let's say, weed out to some extent, um, you know, who's um, a psychopath, let's say, because one out of four, to your point, one out of four CEOs is a psychopath directly. Mm-hmm. So they have no empathy. So they just climb the ladder, stepping on everybody, firing, fuck you, get out of my way, smashing things and just getting whatever they want. And they are particularly charming um, and they lie. So we don't sort of, people who are truth speakers don't really expect everyone around them to be, you know, lying. You, you want to be able to kind of work in an environment that's authentic. So it's really, really toxic. And we saw this uh, in the United States with our recent presidency with Donald Trump, who was, um, I, I I can't diagnose him, but I mean, <laughs> I think a five-year-old could at this point. Um, but that was really tragic in terms of the fallout. You see this pervasive um, trauma to um, an entire generation based on his bad behavior and bad decisions and his selfish, um, you know, antics. So, yeah, we we really need to get together and collaborate around ways to assess, as certainly for position people in positions of power. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's there is another interesting thing. I mean, I don't know the research, but I have a friend who is a psychologist who told me that there is some research that actually if we trust our gut, whatever that means, is that, you know, we can actually, we have an embedded system to detect psychopathy. Uh, And the the less we spend thinking whether this is that or it isn't, (laughs) the the more accurate our judgment basically is. And, And I think it was an experiment where they were like giving people to decide yes or not psychopathy based on images or I don't know what and then the, the shorter the time that they were exposed to the images the more accurate their responses were so <laughs> yeah. I was just like for me it's more like well how do we practice how do we tune our instruments which are our bodies and just kind of come back to that because that's what I think has been cut away from us is, is this and it's not only about narcissism I think in many places our bodies and how we treat them and how much we listen to them is actually kind of cut away. I don't know what's your opinion on that. Yeah, I think Dr. Romani, she talks a lot about not giving the quote unquote benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. So we make the mistake of like, oh, you know, maybe. And But you're right, that first kind of like little red flag where something comes up and you're just like, hmm, that's, you know, there's that little whisper. Yeah, generally, if you listen to it, you're on point. And I think... Mm-hmm. Um, there have been times where I have listened to it even before this relationship. So I know that it works. And I think that that's something that we need to get into a better practice of paying attention to for sure. And I'm also curious beyond the, when we go out of this system or or of this place and, and eventually can be advocates, what was your healing process? What is it that you had to integrate from your own trauma in order to actually as Dr. Ramani would say, not just survive, but thrive. The greatest gift I was given, um, were there, and there were many, but I would say the greatest gift I was given in my specific micro you know, perspective was I became best friends with two or three, I'm sorry, three of his former supplies. So 
the validation that came with seeing exactly what he does and how he copies and pastes the same thing over and over again, that gift was invaluable. And it wasn't just for me. They similarly were like mutually like, holy shit. Like we were kind of all like connecting things and learning and growing together. And I think it was mutually beneficial. Everyone was kind of obsessed with that validation. Like, wow, this isn't me. And however many years this one went through it, they were learning things from me and then vice versa. So we kind of managed um, brilliantly to love on one each one another and learn from each other. Um, and it was really important in terms of healing because it made you feel less crazy. You didn't feel alone in that struggle. We were kind of like lockstep and we would talk to each other to this to this very day, every single day, just checking in, like becomes like a tribe. And I always tell people that are going through this. I know that sometimes the exes are not always willing to communicate, but to the extent that they will, it's always to me worth a try because that relationship for me has been like no other relationship I've ever had. Wow. Yeah. It's uh, it reminds me, uh, my therapist once said, uh, it's like, you're like war buddies and uh, wow. happened there. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's right. a really yeah. good analogy. It's a great metaphor because you, you have this, like, it's like a brotherhood or a sisterhood. You just feel like you've gone to war together, especially because everybody comes out with trauma. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That is exactly how it feels. And, um, I'm also wondering, um, how has this helped you to support your clients better? And what do you think you have brought to them that you might not have had before this experience? Well, you know, it's like if a lot of my clients, if they walk into like a domestic violence center, it's very much like if you walked into a hospital and the hospital said, you're sick, you would say to the hospital, okay, but what do I have, right? So they, we have not done a good enough job in our domestic violence center, certainly in the U.S., of highlighting the characteristics and showing people that there's sort of this like um, playbook that they tend to have. And it creates a clarity and a validation that my clients get from me, knowing that I kind of have gone through the same thing and I have worked to develop language that supports what this looks and feels like so for them I think that's the magic they don't feel crazy they feel validated and they need that so that they can process this and move forward and domestic violence centers will not attach themselves to the narcissistic abuse label they refuse to do that um, most of them all of them certainly in the state of New York where I ran because I was supposed to donate money to them they won't receive the money under the guise of narcissistic abuse so we have decided to channel that, that money somewhere else because we need this um, cause to have to be called what it's called um, but yeah we we think that that language and the characteristics need to be described to people so they can feel validated and I'm wondering, and now this made me very curious what you mentioned, and what is it, the essence of the problem and why the, domestic, the DV shelters are not willing to associate themselves with the label? I think it's because they don't want to be diagnosing 
people with narcissism or NPD because they think, and I don't agree with them, that in some ways that means that the narcissist um, has like almost like a disease or something that we're supposed to feel bad for, like a mental illness or something. Um, and they don't want to kind of use those kinds of labels. Um, it opens them up to too much. Um, but I just feel like it's pussyfooting around the real issue, which is this is a, um, a spectrum of psychopathy that we're dealing with. And we need to, you know, call it what it is. And I get, I have the right to do that to some extent based on my clinical background. So I stay in that clinical space because I, I think it really helps people when they have the science that supports what this is rather than just calling someone toxic because I think that's not strong enough. Yeah, that's that's actually a very interesting thing in also how uh, I feel like how much people would have an empathy for a narcissist when you label them a narcissist and uh, basically kind of forget everything that has happened and all the pain they actually caused. And that's a very interesting thing for me because actually I do the same. <laughs> uh, and although I have, again, almost clinical knowledge on the topic, uh, it's very interesting how much then it's like, oh, we don't have the right or this is not the right space or even in the judicial system. I, I have a friend who is going through the process of not divorce, but child um, bearing battles. And she would be actually punished by the court system if she would say he's a narcissist. Mm -hmm. because, right. then, because then he would go to the psychology, psychologist, they, he would get assessed and he would not be assessed as a narcissist. Mm -hmm. And that's very scary for me. It's like a catch-22. So how do we go around this? Because then, of course, they can't, you can't diagnose someone from one interaction. Uh, or maybe we don't have the tools that are, that are yet good to do that. And so, yeah, it, it feels really uh, debilitating at times when I listen to this story. So I don't know uh, for you what you have seen as a, something that might help this problem. Yeah, so in, um, actually I think in the UK and there's a, a couple of other places that have been doing better in the judicial system than the states as it relates to coercive control. So they're trying to use these terms, coercive control to identify the behaviors of a narcissist or a psychopath or a sociopath. So I think it, it's working. Um, me personally, I would like to fuse the concepts somehow between coercive control and narcissistic abuse. Um, because I think if we marry them, then it checks a box for everyone, because I don't think we can unhand the clinical components altogether. I think they have validity. So I'm trying to see in my book that I'm writing, if there's a way to fuse those concepts. So stay tuned. Yeah, I'm so curious. <laughs> and uh, actually, I'm wondering what brought you to psychotherapy and uh, how was your journey in that? Um, I only got my master's, I think I was 42 years old, and I got it from University of Southern California, and it was an amazing experience. I was working in the Bronx at an outpatient mental health clinic and also at the Bronx High School of Science, which is a rather famous institution where uh, young people have to test in to 
this school rather than use um, finances to get in. So all of the kids are super smart, mostly immigrants, you know, who's going to go to Yale, Harvard. So it was a really cool environment. Um, and also the High School of American Studies in the Bronx. So I was working at those different satellite programs. And I loved it. I just love um, working with people and trying to help them feel empowered mm -hmm. so it's it's kind of like my magic I just I love what I do um everything about it I love my degree was in community organizing so I love the macro lens but I also love you know helping people one-on-one -on -one. so um yeah it was a great it was a great experience working in the Bronx. it was kind of like the belly of the beast everybody had major issues and it was very triage style, you know, kind of like there was a psychiatrist there and it was fast paced and it really was intense in some ways. But um, I loved doing that work and I love doing the work that I do now. And what kind of modality have you have? You, are you practicing in or what do you use mostly as tools in your therapy? I tend to focus quite a bit on cognitive behavioral therapy and also dialectical behavioral therapy, which I am trained in, which is really, really helpful for people who have trauma in terms of coping mechanisms. So um, I even use it for myself, quite honestly. There's a lot of great resources there in DBT. Um, and I like the CBT stuff because I think most of us have cognition that's faulty or sort of swirling around that we need to kind of get away from and input counter logical responses to so those would be probably the two that I focus on the most mm, I, I mean dialectical behavior is very interesting to me because I always find asking therapists questions like how do you accept yourself and grow and instead that's that's always for me it's been in my life but I, I guess it's even if you are not having experiencing any mental health problems we came to these points which are like very dialectical and we have to call that complexity yeah, so that's true. True. That's what true. have people call that complexity um it's it's totally they're not uh, mutually exclusive mm -hmm. you can do those things at the same time i believe mm. just organically i think you can i think um you can stay grounded and also be rather ambitious in terms of what you know you want to accomplish etc Mm -hmm. and what do you what do you think you're the most proud of yourself for doing um the most proud of myself I would say around um any of my work I would say probably um getting my son through college you know it was really really amazing my my son's father and I really worked hard to have that um, happen and he doesn't have student loans. So that was something I'm really proud of. I just bought a house at the Jersey shore. I'm very proud of having, um, worked hard enough to, to accomplish that. Um, I'm proud of the run I did across New York. Um, and I think probably just overall, like pushing through adversity. Mm. And how do you practice gentleness towards yourself in any of these moments? Ah, girl. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I try to 
work hard, play hard. So there is definitely a part of me where I try to like decompress on the weekends, spend time with friends, snuggle my dog, mm -hmm. my love. Um, so there's a lot of self-care that I, you know, my self-care is also my running. I also love when I run. So that's something I love to do. Mm -hmm. So to wrap up, I just want to ask you, uh, is there anything that you think um, you want to add and I didn't bring up as a question um, that, you know, it's maybe important for the people who are listening? You did bring it up and I'll just reiterate. It's, you know, I believe you. It's something that people need to feel. The narcissist or the sociopath is the charming person. So that should not be a motivator in you disbelieving someone who says and reports that that person, that charming, you know, special person that treats you so kindly, if that person is particularly charming, that's even more of a red flag. So it's not less of a red flag. Um, the more charming, the scarier potentially this could be. So it's the I believe you that we need to kind of spend time expressing to victims, survivors. As you have said that, I actually was full of chills. And the um, rapid fire questions to, to finish this is one is, one is a, what is an absurd thing about you that not many people know about? I used to climb telephone poles for the phone company for eight years <laughs> as a phone lady when I was young. So that most people are like, what? That was a great job. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and then um, what are the kind of compliments you like to receive? Um, funny. I like when people think I'm funny because I feel that levity is a great coping mechanism. So, um, you know, making things less heavy when you have trauma can be actually really helpful. So funny is a good place to stay. <laughs> and what do you like to gift to people? I like to... Uh, hold space for people be an ear I think that's my magic um, and meet them where they are mm. with empathy so I try to gift a lot of people that all the time um, I think that's probably the greatest gift I give people and the last question is is there a question for me <laughs> yes um, will you be joining us on my run across New Jersey virtually I haven't seen that it's going on, but I think I, I could because I love running as well. So yes. Okay, awesome. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your honesty, for your openness and for all the work that you do for, as you said, um, many people who might not have the voice. Of course, I'm happy to do it. Thank you.